If you are married, did you invite a priest to your bedroom on the wedding night? Probably not. That is because the blessing of the bedroom is a lost Catholic tradition. In this episode, Kevin and I will be trekking back through the history of this and other lost Catholic traditions. To clarify, by lost, we don't mean practices most baptized Catholics are aware of, but just don't bother with, things like wearing scapulars, praying the rosary, or going to confession, but our focus will be those practices which most Catholics have never seen and never heard of. And we also pared our list down by removing items which have or will have their own episodes, ember days, rogation days, and traditional priestly vestments, for example. And what remained were a dozen or so forgotten Catholic traditions. Rails, veils, and how to genuflect like a Catholic? Coming up on this episode of Catholic History Trek. God bless America. God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you. They will be the concluding words on each broadcast. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president. You've embarked on a Catholic history trek. In some Catholic churches, more commonly but not always older ones, you may find a divider, usually a decorative wooden, metal, or stone railing, across the front of the sanctuary where the altar stands, separating it from the nave where the pews for the congregation are located. Known as a communion rail or an altar rail, this piece of church design was almost universal across the Catholic world for hundreds of years. Theologically speaking, the altar rail is rooted in the practice, common among pre-Christian and non-Christian religions, of erecting a barrier that symbolizes the separation between the ordained or consecrated priesthood and the rest of the faithful. The veil of the temple, described in the Old Testament and mentioned in the New, is one example. In the Eastern Church, the Oconostasis, a wall composed of icons or other religious decoration, remains a common element of church architecture. In the West, the rood screen developed as a similar element. It generally stretched from floor to ceiling, or nearly so, completely separating visually the body of the church from the altar. The historical record seems to be unclear on exactly when or why the rood screen evolved into the communion rail, but the transformation had definitely occurred by the time of the Reformation. There's a theory that the railings had a primarily practical purpose in the Middle Ages when the culture of church attendance was a bit less formal, and they supposedly functioned to keep dogs and other beasts out of the sanctuary. But I'm not sure how sound that theory is, and I don't think Scott puts a lot of stock in it either. There are many references to the rail being required in Catholic churches during the Tridentine period, that is, after the Council of Trent, though I've been unable to locate a specific directive to that effect. In any case, by that time, the rail definitely served a practical liturgical function. Communicants knelt at the railing as a priest or priests moved back and forth distributing the body of Christ. Whatever the historical origins and development, there's no question that by the 19th century, the railing was ubiquitous in the Catholic churches being erected at breakneck pace across the United States. More often than not, they were marvelous works of art featuring ornate wood carving, iron or stonework, and elegant painting. 
Communion rails disappeared from churches in many places, including the U.S., following the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council. In many cases, the removal was part of a larger process of renovation, some critics have described it as recovation, that was arguably intended to bring churches more into line with the new liturgy, or, alternatively, to bring churches more into line with a vaguer spirit of Vatican II by eliminating elements associated with traditional art, architecture, and notions of reverence and devotion. It can be difficult to disentangle those two elements. The important thing to note here is that even under the new liturgical norms, there is no obstacle to communion rails. There's no mention of them one way or the other in, for example, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Second Vatican Council's document on the liturgy, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, the germ, or the U.S. Bishop's instructions on church design built of living stones. So they are neither mandated nor forbidden. Their installation and use are at the discretion of the local pastor or parish community. In this situation, there are some indications that the communion rail is actually making a comeback, as original or replacement railings are restored in churches that lost them, and even some new constructions feature them. The churching of women was a pious custom dating to the early church, in which a mother would present herself in a church soon after childbirth to render thanks to God and to obtain a blessing and the graces necessary to raise a godly child. Although the exact origin of churching is unknown, it is likely derived from the Feast of the Purification. That would be when the Blessed Virgin Mary came to the temple to be purified in accordance with the Mosaic Law. In ages past, when maternal mortality was substantially higher than it is today, a safe and healthy delivery was quite noteworthy, and the blessings associated with churching were intended for the mother. Therefore, while it was not necessary to bring the child, the child was often brought along. The requirements for the rite were that the mother had to be a Catholic woman, validly married, and had not allowed the child to be baptized outside of the Catholic Church. The blessing was only imparted in a church, hence the name churching. The churching of women fell out of favor among Protestants shortly after they broke away from union with Rome, although the Anglicans retained it for a while. Among Catholics, this tradition lasted into the early 20th century, although its prevalence was fading. The Second Plenary Council of Baltimore, held in 1866, insisted upon restoring this custom, which was then already fading out of use, and it prohibited churching to take place where Mass was not celebrated. In the 1890s, the Congregation of Sacred Rites weighed in, commanding that a parish priest must perform the blessing if asked to do so, and even if the child was stillborn or died before it could be baptized, churching could still be permitted. The rite consisted of the mother kneeling in the vestibule with a lit candle, the priest sprinkling her with holy water, the priest then recounting part of Psalm 23 and then another line before they proceeded to the altar where she knelt, and at the altar, the priest would recite a prayer and again sprinkle the mother with holy water and then concluded the churching with a blessing. I'm not sure exactly when the churching a woman became a forgotten tradition, but it seems to have likely happened sometime in the early or mid-20th century. When you're kneeling at the altar rail, you are in a position of reverence already, but Catholic tradition also encourages acts of reverence toward Jesus present in the Eucharist at other times, such as entering and exiting church. Genuflection is one such act. From the Latin genuflectare, knee-bending, a genuflection involves bringing one or both knees all the way to the ground while keeping the rest of the body upright. 
The normative position of prayer in Judaism seems to have been standing, but there are references in the Old Testament to kneeling as a sign of penance or on occasions of special solemnity. The Gospel of Luke says that Jesus knelt to pray during the agony in the garden, and there are several references in Acts to the leaders of the early church kneeling to pray. From then on, kneeling became closely associated throughout the Christian world with praying, reverence, and penance. Genuflection, that is, a separate act as a sign of reverence toward the Eucharist, is a distinct matter. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, there's no documentary evidence for its use until the late Middle Ages, which doesn't mean that it wasn't practiced before then. In the 16th century, so we're talking about the post-Reformation period, genuflection was integrated into the Latin liturgy. The priest was instructed to genuflect before and after the consecration, for example, and all participants genuflected at the et incarnatus est passage during the creed and in the last gospel read at the end of Mass, the phrase near the beginning of the Gospel of John that says the word was made flesh. The practice of double genuflection, bending both knees to the ground, developed as a special sign of reverence. Prior to Vatican II, liturgical rules specified the bending of both knees before the Blessed Sacrament when it was exposed, as during formal adoration. While single genuflection was a sign of reverence to the Blessed Sacrament, enclosed in the tabernacle or upon the altar during Mass. Genuflection was also called for in veneration of the cross on Good Friday, the cross being understood as a representation of Christ himself though the body of Christ was absent from the church during the interval from Good Friday to Easter. A closely related gesture is bowing. There are two forms of the bow, the simple and the profound. The simple bow is what you might describe as a reverent nod of the head. A common tradition rooted in the liturgy was to bow one's head at the name of Jesus or at the names of the Trinity announced together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, also at the name of Mary, and during Mass for the names of saints being commemorated. A profound bow is a bending from the waist and lowering one's head. Its main usage is as an act of reverence toward the altar, but it is also appropriate in other instances, such as during the incensing rite at Mass. Genuflection and bowing are not lost traditions in the sense that they've disappeared, but some of the distinctions and specific usages have fallen away. I'm not sure how widespread double genuflection is, though I did learn it in my post-Vatican II upbringing in a typical parish. As a formal matter, however, the liturgical norms applying in most parts of the world, including the U.S., no longer mention the double genuflection, so there is no official distinction. And the genuflection has been removed from parts of the liturgy, obviously, for example, the last gospel, because that reading is no longer done in parishes other than those that use the extraordinary form or traditional Latin Mass. However, the priestly genuflection after consecration is retained in the new rite, and even the incarnation genuflection survives in a more limited way. On the feasts of the incarnation, the Annunciation and Christmas, all genuflect during the recitation of the Nicene Creed when the line, and the word was made flesh, is spoken. On other days, the ministers and faithful are to make a profound bow at those words. So, unlike the single-double genuflection distinction, the one between simple and profound bows remains in the Mass of Paul VI, the post-Vatican II Mass, and the rubrics call for the ministers to make profound bows at various points. Perhaps the most divisive lost tradition on our list is that of the chapel veil. Traditionally seen as a symbol of the beauty and dignity of women, modernists often dismiss it as a symbol of misogynistic oppression. Regardless, veiling goes back to the very origin of the church. We can find St. Paul very clearly teaching it in the 11th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, where St. Paul teaches 
the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man. He further adds, every man praying or prophesying with his head covered is disgraced, but every woman doing the same with her head uncovered is disgraced, which is as bad as if her head were shaven. And St. Paul includes, man is the image and glory of God, woman is the image and glory of man. St. Paul's teaching to the Corinthians was echoed in his letter to the Ephesians when he wrote, the husband is the head of the wife, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. For St. Paul, the natural hierarchy established by God is reflected by a woman veiled in church, and to remove the veil was to reject God's divine order and revelation. St. Paul was not an extremist in this theological view, but we see that veiling was the common practice in the early church. In fact, it's very likely St. Peter's first successor, Pope St. Linus, taught as much when he was the head of the church in the mid-first century. The Liber Pontificalis, which records the history of the papacies from St. Peter up to the Middle Ages, dedicates only a few lines to Pope Linus. But despite the brevity of its account, it makes sure to mention this line regarding Linus, which was, He, by direction of the blessed Peter, decreed that a woman must veil her head to come into the church. In the 3rd century, St. Clement of Alexandria explained that it was becoming for a woman to pray veiled, and Tertullian explained that St. Paul meant this teaching was for women of every age, every rank, and every circumstance, with no exceptions. Tertullian even wrote an entire treatise on the veiling of virgins in which he explained the importance of veiling. In the 4th century, some significant early church fathers spoke of this necessity of veiling, including St. John Chrysostom, St. Ambrose of Milan, and St. Augustine of Hippo. St. John Chrysostom was adamant on the necessity of veiling and held that being uncovered is always a reproach for women, and under the veil, the hair should be carefully wrapped up on every side, so none of it is exposed. His view was for veiling to always be practiced, not just at church. He further commented that by removing the veil, a woman does not rise up to the glory of man, but instead falls from her own dignity of woman, because she goes against the design ordained by God, and thus is not liberated, but enslaved. The saint's sentiments are captured by G.K. Chesterton, who once pointed out, 10,000 women march through the streets shouting, we will not be dictated to, and then went off and became stenographers. St. Ambrose of Milan wrote in his work titled Concerning Virgins, Is anything so conductive to lust as with unseemly movements thus to expose in nakedness those parts of the body which either nature has hidden or custom has veiled, to sport with the looks, to turn the neck, to loosen the hair? Like John Chrysostom, Ambrose of Milan also taught that the hair must always be fully covered, and failure to do so was to commit the sin of lust. St. Augustine of Hippo commented on the necessity of veiling in a letter to a fellow priest named Posidius, where he wrote, Those who are of the world think how they are to please their wives, if they are men, or husbands if they are women, except that women, whom the apostle orders to cover their heads, ought not to uncover the hair, even if they are married. In his treatise on holy virginity, Augustine addressed the abuse of women who veiled but either intentionally allowed the hair to show around the edges of the veil, or wore veils so thin that the hair showed through. 
He considered these as abuses against chastity and modesty. Augustine was so adamant that women should always veil that he described the removal of the veil with the Latin word nudare, basically equating unveiling with the immodesty of nakedness. Which is why it's kind of funny when movies about St. Augustine show St. Monica and the other Christian women either unveiled or partially veiled, because these movie makers clearly did not know St. Augustine that well. In a work attributed to Ambrosiaster, it is explained that the church's tradition was to veil, but since the Corinthians were ignoring it, St. Paul wrote his epistle to the Corinthians to correct them in their error. As an aside, the comments by these early church fathers illustrate the drastic loss in modesty from their time to now. Today, the veiled women at Latin masses are arguably the most modestly dressed group among all Catholic and Protestant women, but the beautiful lacy veils they often wear, which can be seen through and which don't cover all the hair, would have been branded by these early Christians as immodestly insufficient. This teaching on veiling was not some sort of cultural novelty, isolated to the earliest days of the church, but 1,000 years later, in the 13th century, St. Thomas Aquinas reiterated it in his Summa, where he implied it was a sin not to veil. Although, he did say one could be excused from the guilt of the sin if they had removed the veil due to some custom, and not for purposes of vanity. Although, he then explained that such a custom itself would be shameful. In his Commentary on Epistle to Corinthians, this doctor of the church gave further theological explanations why it was suitable for women to wear the veil. Up through the Middle Ages, women continued to cover their hair, both at Mass and in public. But art from the Renaissance begins to show these coverings becoming smaller, less about modesty and more about decoration, at least among some of the women during the era. The Mona Lisa, for example, portrays a woman wearing a veil, but a very sheer black veil through which her hair can be easily seen. Likely prompted by this change in the culture, the 16th century saint Charles Borromeo frequently said, women who are not thus veiled should be refused admittance into the church. What followed the Renaissance was the so-called age of reason, which separated reason from faith. It was an age of moral darkness in which God and Christian influence began to be separated from many aspects of life. And while many women still followed the age-old traditions of Christian modesty, we began to find evidence in the art of the time of some women abandoning their head coverings altogether. In response to this, the great Catholic theologian Cornelius Alapidae reminded the faithful of St. Paul's exhortation that it was a disgrace for a woman to have her head uncovered and that the apostle was speaking of women in the world and not just at church. Even up to the 20th century, head coverings were still required to be worn at church per the 1917 Code of Canon Law, also called the Pio Benedictine Code of Canon Law for Popes St. Pius X and Benedict XV. Canon 1262 required men to be bareheaded and women to have their heads covered. Also of note are Canons 21 and 28, which taught any age-old customs are considered as part of the law, and previous canons still oblige, even if they are not explicitly addressed in the latest code. I reference these two canons because when the Code of Canon Law was next updated in 1983, the requirement for head coverings was not mentioned. 
it was not revoked, but simply not listed among the latest canons. Keeping canons 21 and 28 from the Pio Benedictine Code in mind, it would seem the requirement for veiling at church was still in force, as it was an age-old custom, so therefore part of the law, and it was not explicitly addressed in the latest code. Despite this, the lack of mention in the 1983 Code of Canon Law has often been treated as an elimination of the requirement to veil at church, and as a result, this apostolic tradition of veiling was all but abandoned after nearly 2,000 years, although veils do seem to be making something of a small comeback as younger generations are rediscovering Catholic traditions discarded by their parents' and grandparents' generations. One last note on the tradition of veiling, the epitome of womanly virtue and dignity, the Blessed Virgin Mary, is always veiled when appearing in authentic apparitions, and often her hair is entirely covered, such as the apparitions of Lords Fatima, La Salette, and Cabejo. Our first four traditions were related to actions in church or during Mass. Our next set of traditions involve prayer and blessings. At least in my own little world, the one I'm about to cover is a genuinely lost tradition in that I had never heard of it until a few years ago and have never had any direct exposure to it. I'm talking about the chalking of the doors on the Feast of the Epiphany, which in the Western Church occurs on January 6th, 12 days after Christmas. Chalk is used to inscribe over the doors of churches, homes, or I suppose any building, the following equation. A number plus C plus M plus B plus a second number. This isn't actually a mathematical formula. The numbers at the beginning and end represent the current, that is, upcoming year. So next year you would put 20 at the beginning and 24 at the end for 2024. The plus signs represent crosses and the letters represent the initials of the Magi, Casper, Melchior, and Baltazar, as well as the initials of the phrase Christus Mansionem Benedicat, May Christ Bless This House. It is a way to invoke God's blessing for the year, asking him to be present in a dwelling and near to all those who inhabit it. Sometimes the ceremony of chalking is preceded by the blessing of chalk at an Epiphany Mass. The ceremony of chalking can be simple, consisting of the act itself, or more elaborate, involving a procession and prayers. Like so many similar customs, the origins of the tradition appear to be shrouded in the mists of history. I found references to it being an ancient practice and centuries-old tradition, but these are pretty vague. Some advocates point to precedent in the Old Law, whereby the Israelites marked their doors most notably on Passover. Some claim that there was a similar practice among the early Christians, which survived in Central Europe through the Middle Ages, then spread around the world in the last few hundred years. Interestingly, the modern custom seems not to be exclusively Catholic. It had some strength in post-Reformation England among Anglicans and Methodists as well. Unlike some of the other traditions we're discussing, I can't tell that this one has any important relationship to Vatican II reforms, unless maybe indirectly it suffered in the general abandonment of devotional practices. But it seems to have more to do with geography and chance. You're familiar with it if you happen to be from a region where the custom has been common. Otherwise, not. Another lost Catholic tradition is making the sign of the cross when passing a cemetery. This tradition takes its roots from the history of making the sign of the cross, episode 60, and the history of praying for the deceased, episode 83. In the earliest centuries of the Catholic Church, both Tertullian and St. Cyril of Jerusalem 
mention to mark ourselves with the seal of the cross in all our comings and goings, in our dressing, bathing, eating, drinking, and so on. St. Gregory of Nyssa describes the sign of the cross as one of the traditions of the church. St. Cyril and St. Athanasius explain how it has power over evil. One example of this, as St. Epiphanius retells, is of a holy man named Josephus who made the sign of the cross over a vessel of water, imparting to it power to overthrow magical incantations. And St. Benedict famously made the sign of the cross over a glass of poisoned wine, causing it to break, thwarting the evil intentions of those who planned to kill him. And the early church historian Sozomen described an account when a bishop Donatus made the sign of the cross when confronted by a dragon. This apostolic tradition, while mostly abandoned by Protestants, has been retained by Catholics in their prayers, including their prayers for the deceased. Praying for the faithful departed is as old as the church itself, and we find evidence of prayers for the deceased in the inscriptions carved in the catacombs, where some of the earliest masses were celebrated. And the Apostolic Constitutions mentions a prayer for the departed, which begins, Let us pray for our brethren that are at rest in Christ, that God, the lover of mankind, who has received his soul, may forgive him every sin. Seeking the forgiveness or atonement for sins is a common theme of prayers for the deceased, especially considering, as St. John the Evangelist points out in the Apocalypse, that nothing unclean or defiled shall be found in heaven. The Gospel of Matthew alludes to the possibility of sins being expiated or atoned for in the world to come, and St. Paul speaks of a consuming fire which causes suffering but through which one is saved, a fire Catholics call purgatory. The Gospels of Luke and Matthew both tell of Jesus teaching to be reconciled before seeing the judge, for he will cast you into prison until you pay the very last penny. St. Jerome and St. Augustine both called this penny the smallest earthly sins, which would make this prison, purgatory, where one pays the last penny and has every stain of sin remitted, which has not yet been atoned for. In the Baltimore Catechism, number three, Questions 1378 through 1385 explain the particular judgment and purgatory. In this catechesis, it is found how the faithful on earth can help the souls in purgatory by their prayers, fasts, alms, and deeds. When Catholics used to make the sign of the cross when passing a cemetery, it was often accompanied with a small prayer for the souls of the faithful departed, who are now having the stains of their sins expiated in purgatory. And... Even if not accompanied by a prayer, the sign of the cross itself is a prayer, and the simple act was a plea for God's mercy on the poor souls, both buried in that particular cemetery and in general. It's similar to how Catholics used to make the sign of the cross when an ambulance or fire truck raced by. For the souls, for any who may have died in the emergency which prompted the rescue crews to respond, praying for the poor souls at the place of their burial was a common practice which can be traced back to the origins of the church when the earliest Christians would visit the catacombs to offer mass and pray for these poor souls. But in our modern culture, polling shows the pronounced decline in the importance of religion in people's lives, and with this follows a decline in the belief in heaven and hell and the belief in purgatory. This lack of faith, coupled with poor catechesis on the doctrine of purgatory for those who do believe, 
has resulted in the poor souls often left forgotten and neglected, even though the church has a whole month of November set aside for them. The next tradition is one very similar to the one Scott just covered, making the sign of the cross passing by the outside of a Catholic church. The idea here is, of course, similar to that described for genuflection earlier, a sign of reverence toward Jesus present in the tabernacle. Not being inside the building or in close proximity, we take the level of veneration down a notch so that a hand gesture rather than a genuflection is adequate. The usual sign of the cross made with the hand and arm is what I'm accustomed to, but some American Catholics also report learning the less demonstrative version of using the thumb alone and making a small cross on the forehead, like a priest during baptism or as all do at the reading of the gospel during mass. Again, it's difficult to locate this particular custom in history. All I can say is it appears to be universal, reportedly common across the church from the Americas to Europe to Asia. Anecdotally, it does appear to have been affected by Vatican II or its aftermath, because like other devotions, it became less common, although it never completely disappeared. Today, salt is so common, we dump 48 billion pounds of it on our roads in the United States every winter. Or, for the cooks listening to our episode, we dump three and a half trillion teaspoons of it. But in the ancient world, salt was a precious commodity, so much so that the Latin word for salt, sal, became the root word for salarium, meaning salary. There's even a popular myth that Roman soldiers were paid in salt. While that's likely more fiction than fact, it does seem, at times, they may have received bonuses paid in salt. In his work, The Natural History, Pliny the Elder details Roman uses of salt, where he mentions... Salt plays its part in the honors bestowed upon successful warfare. Our word solarium is derived from salt. It is of high importance in our sacred rites, and no offering is ever made without being accompanied by a salted cake. The Romans were not the only ones to use salt in their sacred rites. In the book of Leviticus, the Israelites seasoned all the sacrifices offered to God with salt. And in the book of Ezekiel, this practice is echoed, saying the priests shall salt the animal sacrifices placed on the altar of the Lord. In Numbers and 2 Chronicles, we find mention of the Lord making a covenant of salt with Israel. Ezekiel also mentions that for their health, newborns were washed with water, swaddled with clouts, and salted with salt. And Job points out that nothing unsavory can be eaten without salt. In the second book of Kings, we find a rite very similar to the blessing of holy water, in which Elisha casts salt into pestilent water, removing any sterility and death from the water. Moving ahead to the New Testament, we find Jesus' famous line in the Gospel of Matthew, You are the salt of the earth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus asking, If salt loses its savor, with what can it be seasoned? The early Christians used this analogy of salt. St. Paul exhorted one's speech to be seasoned with salt, that they may know how to answer every man. St. Jerome claimed the whole human race was seasoned by the apostles, and St. Hilary claimed they were salters because by their preaching they preserved bodies for eternity. St. John Chrysostom said the task of the apostles was to be the salt, to keep men from returning to corruption after the power of Christ had freed them. Chrysostom also added 
that as the salt of the earth, we are not to flatter men, but we are to be rough and biting as salt. Basically, we're called to teach hard truths and not peddle soft lies. While the use of salt can be traced back to the prophet Elisha and the Holocaust offerings to God, the use of blessed salt as a sacramental seems to go back to apostolic times. And of this salt, there's basically two types of liturgical salt, baptismal and blessed. Baptismal salt was sanctified by prayers and exorcisms and was administered to catechumens before entering the church for baptism. The Third Council of Carthage implies it was administered to them several times a year. In his commentary on the local synod of 318 in Bithynia, the 17th century French scholar Justellus references salt being given with milk and honey to these baptized catechumens. The use of salt is also confirmed by St. Augustine, John the Deacon, and St. Isidore of Seville. The other salt is blessed salt, which is exercised and blessed in the use of making holy water. According to the 1895 Roman Pontifical, basically a large book which contains all the ceremonies and blessings reserved for the pontiff, bishop, or abbot, the use of blessed salt is found in laying the foundation stone of a church, consecrating a church, and consecrating an altar. For an altar, the blessing includes St. Paul's, let your speech always be seasoned with salt, while the blessing for the church and her cornerstone reference Elisha's healing of the sterile waters, and includes the pontiff throwing salt into the water, just as the prophet did. It's said this use of salt for consecrating a church can be found at least as far back as the 10th century Gregorian sacramentary. The 1962 Roman Ritual, a large book with the rites and blessings a priest can do, describes salt, blessed with an exorcism, being placed in the mouth of one being baptized. Besides making holy water, consecrating altars in church, and being fed to the baptized, blessed salt can be used for other purposes. The most common is the blessing of a home, which involves a barrier of blessed salt to protect from the demonic. And yes, if you have grass, the salt will kill it. The salt basically leaves a line of dead grass where it was poured, which kind of forms a sort of spiritual fence. And blessed salt can also be used in cooking. It is salt, after all. And while not officially forgotten, the use of blessed, exercised salt has certainly waned in popularity, with few Catholics even knowing it's a thing. For our third and final group of traditions, we turn to customs associated with marriage. The first one is betrothal. Like many of the traditions we've covered, the ceremony of betrothal has clear antecedents in the Old Testament. Christians will be familiar with the story of the betrothal of Mary and Joseph preceding their wedding, as related in the Gospels. The relationship between betrothal and marriage was somewhat different in the Old Law, but the general outlines of the custom continued in the New Law, as the ritual and practice of the sacrament of matrimony developed over the centuries. The history of this custom is clearer than that for some of the others we've covered, probably because it's so closely related to marriage, which has both canon and civil law importance, and is therefore widely documented. In the 4th century, St. Augustine described betrothals as legal contracts promising an intent to marry. Dowries and marriage gifts would sometimes be exchanged at this point. By the 9th century, betrothal was, in the words of the Catholic Encyclopedia, a very frequent subject of church legislation. 
While it represented a commitment that was both more spiritual and more formal than our common modern practice of engagement, it was publicly witnessed and documented, for example, it was similar in the sense that the couple by mutual agreement could dissolve the commitment, which could not be done after the marriage ceremony. There remains in force a rite of betrothal within Catholic liturgical books, and couples are free to utilize it, though of course it is not a necessary prerequisite for marriage. The contemporary rite, like the old one, involves a priest and witnesses. The couple make promises, such as, I declare and affirm that I will one day bind and oblige myself unto thee, and the priest blesses them and the engagement ring. There are some indications that the ceremony is growing in popularity as young Catholics rediscover traditions and seek the grace to live a virtuous engagement in preparation for marriage. When a couple gets married, they can be said to be tying the knot. And this is because, in some cultures, they literally tied a knot. Tying or wrapping the hands of a man and woman entering the bond of marriage can be traced back to ancient Rome, and can also be found in old Germanic customs and on the British Isles. The fastening of the hands, or hand fasting, constituted an oath and was used to solemnly ratify various types of contracts, including marriage. A Christian reference to this practice can be found in an 8th century martyrology written by Arbio of Friesing, titled Life and Passion of St. Emmeram, a Bavarian bishop martyred around the year 680. In it, a description is found of a marriage between a Christian and a pagan woman in which the hand was wrapped around with a cloak, as is the custom in espousals. The practice of hand fasting found its way into Catholic weddings and in the Roman ritual. According to the rite, the priest was to wrap his stole around the hands of the couple and then pronounce the words, joining them in matrimony in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This rite was featured in both Germanic and Anglo-Saxon marriages in the Middle Ages, and some frescoes of the espousals of St. Joseph and the Blessed Virgin Mary show a priest placing his stole over the couple's hands, as per this hand-fasting tradition. Weddings of the nobility were typically conducted by a priest and in the presence of witnesses to help validate legitimate claims of property rights among the wealthy, but among the lower classes, some weddings were held in secret. In those weddings, the traditional practice of hand-fasting sufficed in lieu of any officials of church or state. Saying these weddings were secret simply means there was no official representation or even documentation of the wedding. Sometimes one would engage in a secret wedding with less than pure intent. For example, a clandestine marriage would make it easier for one of the spouses to later decide to leave the other and then take a new one in a public wedding. After all, there would be little evidence to prove the first wedding had ever taken place. To combat this abuse, the Fourth Lateran Council, held in 1215, forbid clandestine marriages. It also decreed marriages must be publicly announced in churches beforehand, which would allow for any lawful impediments to be raised before the marriage took place. Three centuries later, the 24th session of the Council of Trent declared that while freely contracted clandestine marriages are valid, they are prohibited, and anyone abandoning their spouse of a secret marriage to then take a new spouse in a public marriage would be living in mortal sin. Of course, now there are some in the church who want to pretend abandoning a spouse and taking a new one 
is no longer sinful, and are advocating for them to receive the Eucharist while in the state of moral sin, but I digress. Trent reiterated the Lateran Council's requirement for public declarations, so there would be enough time and awareness of the marriage intent, so any lawful impediments to the marriage could be investigated. The parish priest was to publicly announce the bans of matrimony in the church on three separate occasions before the marriage, and when it was celebrated, it had to be in the presence of the priest and at least a couple witnesses. The church still requires the clergy, the witnesses, and a set time between an engagement and a wedding, usually six months or more in America. This time is set aside to investigate any impediments, such as previous marriages, so the marriage can be made valid. But today it's also used as a period for the couple to pursue basic marriage prep so they don't rush into the marriage. As Christian marriages became more official and clandestine marriages became less common, so too did the hand-fasting ritual. And while it's now incredibly rare in Catholic weddings, it is making something of a comeback in non-Christian circles. Drawing on its pagan pre-Christian roots, some modern atheists and apostates have incorporated hand-fasting into their wedding ceremonies as something of a defiant act against Christian weddings, which are performed by a priest and in a church. Of course, these neo-pagans are usually clueless that hand-fasting was, for many centuries, a feature in Catholic weddings. The next wedding-related tradition is known as the nuptial veil. The nuptial veil, also known as a care cloth, is distinct from what we now call the wedding or bridal veil, which is the covering over the head and face that many brides wear, though there does appear to be some similarity in the symbolism. The nuptial veil consists of a canopy held by two witnesses over the heads of the bride and groom during the wedding mass, or draped over the head and shoulders of both as they kneel for the nuptial blessing. As far as I can tell, this is a custom that was closely associated with the nuptial mass of the Tridentine or traditional Latin form, and has only continued in places where the traditional mass is said. The veil symbolizes the cloud or shadow that appears in Scripture as a manifestation of God's presence, protection, and blessing. In Exodus, accompanying the chosen people in the desert, for example, or in Luke, coming upon the Virgin Mary at the Annunciation, or again in Luke, appearing at the Transfiguration. Later, the veil also came to signify the purity and sanctity that the bride and groom were to bring to each other and pursue together. Like a number of these traditions, some scholars have pointed to pre-Christian antecedents in Judaism and Greek and Roman customs. Modern Jewish weddings include a similar custom involving a canopy, though given the lack of evidence for the antiquity of this ceremony, there's some question about which way the influence might have run. That is, possibly Jews borrowed the idea from Christians, instead of the other way around. The sources I consulted placed the beginnings of the use of the nuptial veil as far back as the 4th century, when marriage ceremonies were still predominantly private affairs, but the couple would also be blessed during a public mass. And it was during that ceremony that the veil would be used. There's a line from St. Ambrose in the late 300s that points to this usage. It is fitting that the marriage be sanctified by the imposition of the veil and the blessing of the priest. The nuptial blessing is clearly of ancient usage as well, appearing in the earliest sacramentaries, even for rites other than the Roman, such as the Mozarabic. But it was closely associated with the Roman rite and spread along with it across the church throughout the Middle Ages. The use of the nuptial veil appears to have faded somewhat beginning in the 17th century, even as the Tridentine Mass continued to be universal. 
It persisted, however, in some regions, especially in France, Italy, and Spanish-speaking nations. You might still see it today in some, but not all, nuptial masses celebrated according to one of the traditional rites. In the part of Ohio where I grew up, the traditional wedding day ritual often consisted of a wedding mass performed by a priest, a gap of about three hours or so between the wedding and a reception, so the wedding party could stop at the local bars and get drunk on their way to the reception, a reception lasting into the night with five, six, seven hundred people drinking free alcohol, square dancing, and feasting on a buffet dinner, and the bride and groom eventually slipping out and making their way home. When the bride and groom entered their home and made the way to their bedroom, they were alone. They did not have anyone with them, especially not the priest. But there was a time when the priest would, in fact, accompany them to their bedroom to perform a blessing, specified in the Roman ritual as the Benedictia Thamily, or blessing of the bedroom. This blessing of the wedding chamber and bed can be traced back to early Greek, Roman, and Jewish traditions and made its way into the early church as a Catholic ritual. The oldest surviving mentions of this ritual can be found in the 5th and 6th centuries. Bishop Valerianus of Auxerre was recorded being invited into a bedchamber to recite the prayers, and Bishop Avitus of Vienne wrote of the ritual in a letter. Both references describe the blessing as taking place in the home. A couple centuries later, we can find the prayers for the blessing of a bedchamber in the Bobbio Missal from southwest France. These blessings all took place after the wedding, although there was a contemporary Iberian tradition of blessing the bedchamber with salt before the wedding mass. Moving to the 10th century, there are extant English manuscripts with sets of prayers to be recited by the priest in the couple's home, including the blessing of the bedchamber. In this era, it was not uncommon for a wedding to take place at a home instead of in a church which, of course, would make this bedchamber blessing easier to facilitate. A 1072 provincial synod in Normandy banned these two frequent private weddings, and the 12th century Life of the Blessed Virgin Oda, written by the Norbertine abbot Philip Having, described how she escaped an arranged marriage for which she had been summoned to her home to perform. The Barry St. Edmund's Missal from the 12th century describes the steps of a typical English wedding. Included in these is the blessing of the bedchamber, which takes place after the wedding mass. The priest usually performed this blessing either before the couple entered the room or he entered the room with them. And often, there was a group present for the blessing, and in some cases, the couple would even be lying in the bed. The oldest copies of the ritual for the bedchamber blessing include several different prayers, including mention of the wedding of Tobias and Sarah, described in the book of Tobit chapter 7, although the latest version in the Roman ritual is much shorter, with a simple prayer for peace and happiness for the couple who share the bridal chamber. A basic distinction in Catholic theology is between tradition with a capital T and tradition with a lowercase t. Big T tradition, like sacred scripture, is sacred revelation, universal and unchanging. Small T traditions can change, are not necessarily universal, though they sometimes are, and are often connected to particular cultures. But these traits don't mean that small T traditions are unimportant. They're often quite valuable for instilling the faith and integrating it into the lives of the faithful. 
Historian James O'Toole has written of American Catholics in the 20th century, it was religious practice carried out in daily and weekly observance that embodied their faith more than any abstract set of dogmas. I suspect this has been true of the vast majority of Catholics throughout history. Traditions may be contingent and transitory, but they do help to connect us to what is lasting. Tradition in its Latin root means what is handed on. Insofar as small t traditions help us hand on big t tradition, they shouldn't be discarded lightly. One of our traditions here at Catholic History Trek is to end each episode with a prayer. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Sicutrat in principio et nunc et semper et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.